Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of RZ Weekly. My name is Ruben Spolter, and I'm here with Rabbi Malibrovsky. And welcoming back Rabbi Johnny Salman from a long uh, assignment. Johnny, it's great to have you back. Thank you so much. <laughs> great to have you. Uh, Malibrovsky is a senior faculty member at Michlelet Mivaseret Yerushalayim and maintains a clinical social work practice in Gush Etzion. Rabbi Johnny Solomon is a teacher at Machon Mayan and Midrash Torah B'Chesed, a writer and editor of Jewish content for numerous organizations around the world, a guest teacher, and of course, a visiting scholar on behalf of OTS Amiel B'Kihila. I am Ruben Spolter, the director of said OTS Amiel B'Kihila, and also the rabbinic liaison for English-speaking countries at Irgun Rabbinate Sohar. In today's episode, two topics. Topic number one is going to be the recent um, turmoil that's taking place in Israel as a, uh, um, um, as a result of the shooting of a young Ethiopian, shooting and killing of a young Ethiopian a few days ago and the protests as a result of last night. And then after that, we're going to discuss an interesting phenomenon, the changing curriculum in Yeshivot um, and uh, how, how that change is happening, an interesting article in Makor Rishon. So I'm going to start, with, let's begin with our first topic just by telling uh, by telling what happened to me last night. So it happens to be last night I was uh, I, I did a wedding in Tel Aviv, an early wedding for Tsara in Tel Aviv, and um, and uh, after the wedding was over, we got out of there, got in, got out pretty quick, it was very nice. And on the way back, we're on the four. My, I always have a driver, and you're driving, and all of a sudden, this traffic just stops, and we're sure that it's an accident. And then after like you know you're waiting and waiting, then it becomes clear that we're not going anywhere, and all of a sudden we begin to notice that there's smoke up ahead, and it becomes clear that there are these that, that we're, this is part of a larger protest going on by the Ethiopian community. That just It's an interesting phenomenon that we're going to have to talk about. In Israel now, major protests have to take place by stopping uh, large, large thoroughfares, by protesting in the middle of the street, and by, by preventing traffic from, from traveling. Uh, that, that's now a newly accepted, an accepted form of protest in Israel. And... Um, What's real, it was really interesting, as we sat there, we sat there, I sat there on the floor for two and a half hours from 8.30 to 11. And I understand that people were sitting in some traffic jams from, you know, four hours and even five hours. And what was really fascinating, first of all, you know, on the one hand, people are incredibly frustrated. Just in our group, the police had to, on the one hand, help a pregnant woman who was having trouble. You don't think about the real world ramifications of what it means to shut down traffic. There was also a... Uh, Kala, who was late to her own wedding, and they somehow were able to get her through. I don't know how they did that. Wow. Uh, but there were all, it was like a, it was it was such a it was a it was it was a quintessential I would say Israeli experience. There were tons of people on their way to weddings or smachot that they just missed. You know, so you had people walking around on the highway, like outside of their cars. Like some, I, I just vivid memory of these these women in these like long dress you know gowns. Red, like dressed to the nines, like ready for, you know, and this woman with her dog. And, and what was interesting really was there was this sort of understanding of, of, of A, there's nothing you can do, and B, I don't know if I'm, I'm going to articulate how I felt. It was like sort of the, the least we could do to understand the pain of these Ethiopians. That if that's all it was, I, I really had done my thing, so I wasn't really pressured to get anywhere. If all it was was sitting on the floor and like waiting for them to finish, that was the least we could do to identify with their pain. There was sort of a, like a sort of a communal understanding, as it were, that the country has to go through this and has to accept it and has to allow them to express themselves and and uh, and to let that happen. I guess it was fortunate where we were. There wasn't there wasn't violence against us. People weren't overreacting. 
we were far enough back that we didn't really see the protest. We were just sitting in the back. But of course, it was, it was so Israeli in the fact that somebody had a package of like, you know, of snacks and they were giving out water and tried to get a meeting for Mariam and it didn't really work. But it was like, it was so, it was just very much, very Israeli. It was, I, that's just how I felt that here you are and stuck in a the, in the traffic jam and everyone's just kind of sitting there understanding and, you know, and, and, and the motorcycle zooming by and people trying to help a four by four get out. You know, like it was just, it was very interesting. It was, it was kind of surrealist in a way, but also very, very real. Okay, so I'm going to turn it over to Johnny because I know there are certain things that you want to say. There are so many ways to come at this. I don't think we have a really, I don't have a religious Zionist perspective on this. I think everyone in Israel on the one hand appreciates that there, there are problems, there's racism in this country. And, and it's almost unavoidable, it's difficult, and it's painful, it has to be addressed. It's not clear that it can be addressed, it's not something you can just address, it's something that takes, that takes years and years and decades of work to try to work through. So I don't know if I, don't know if I have a really Zionist perspective, but I think each of us have an opinion about this very important um, event that, that took place in Israel this week. Rabjani. Well, you know, it's actually lovely to hear you being very philosophical about what happened to you last night. But from the many people I spoke to and the many blogs I read today, many people are not philosophical. And their response, and I listened to the radio this morning, was anger at how a lot of the country was shut down. I mean, in my neighborhood, I live right near Kiryat Gat, and not far from Kiryat Malachi. The, the roads were blocked with uh, tires which were burnt. Uh, my wife and kids got stuck, but one of my kids has... Uh, significant anxieties and it wasn't so pretty uh, during the car even though they had snacks and and they found a way around things but the frustration is this although people will speak uh, and acknowledge that the Ethiopian Jewish community has uh, valid uh, uh, complaints against the state valid complaints against what happened and, and I think it's important to name this 18 year old young man called Solomon Teka um, and uh, his family, obviously, in great mourning, and people have said, notwithstanding what's been happening, we should put them in our forefront of our mind. But still, in the radio, people are blaming the police. People are talking about politicians. People discussing how like they it took to come home. And you have a community which, after many, many decades of being marginalized in a subtle way, some want to call it racism, some choose not to, and I'm not going to walk into that fray. Nonetheless, there is a context of, of a, a community that we brought to this country with great pride and with great fanfare. But in fact, on a day-to-day -day basis, in terms of how that culture is acknowledged and how it gets uh, respected in a whole gamut of different places, only now is this happening. Only last year were the Kessim uh, recognized as being religious leaders. Uh, only two years ago was blood from the Ethiopian Jewish community con considered to be valid, be donated. And 20 years ago, many thousands donated blood and literally it was washed down the drain. There are many, many cases of people who've been, uh, 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 who felt brutality in, uh, in, by the police and in prisons that they felt have been uh, acted with unjustly. And my feeling is, I'm not here to talk about the specifics of the case uh, right now. An inquest is happening. It's actually a closed inquest. Not necessarily what precisely made last night the straw that broke the camel's back. But what we do need to do is learn a little bit more about a community which are part and parcel of Israeli society, 
which I think most of us know very little about and know very little about the things that led many of them to go out on the streets last night and say enough. And in fact, they're planning on doing so tonight and maybe even tomorrow night too. This is a major uh, movement trying to say we want to be heard and respected. Our job is to do that. Molly. Okay. Well, Johnny, I, I would, I, before we get to Molly, my, my question is, like this was their, their response, and if you listen to the media, their response, this is with response to a, to a specific event that was perpetrated by the police. And they say in the, me in, in the, in the media, it's well known while they've improved, there's a, there's a definite phenomenon of over-policing when it comes to the Ethiopian, Ethiopian community. Over-policing means that the police will initiate uh, an, a confrontation, an investigation, a search, you know, you know that, and, and this is, it's proportionately against members of the Ethiopian community. And that, that's a phenomenon. So if you wanna, I don't know, you don't wanna call it racism, like I think that as a, like I said to, what's interesting is I feel like in every community there's always someone who talks about them and us. And I said, if you've never experienced that, and I've never experienced that, we have no idea what the, the pain that they're feeling. That's that's, and I agree with you in in that area. And yet, I say to myself, like I really not that I don't I, in my circles, like I I don't really have regular interaction. I don't live in Kiryat Malachi. I don't have regular interaction in my life. When I do, I try very much to treat people as people not to give them preferential treatment or certainly not to treat them in any way differently. You know, one wonders, and we'll come back to this, what can we really do about it? What can I do about it? Like if I try to think to myself, am I part of the problem? I really think I'm not. Molly. Okay. Um, so first of all, I, I want to bring a more, what I want to talk about really is being able to have a nuanced and balanced perspective here. Um, I, I don't want to talk about yes, but I want to talk about yes, and meaning, first of all, I think your description didn't, I first of all, I was very happy to hear your description because I'm happy to hear that where you were, um, you got, first of all, that it wasn't such a difficult experience for the people in the Kakim. And I'm glad that you also highlighted the positives, which I've seen a lot on social media. You know, I saw the Dove Lipman put out this thing with B'nai Yeshiva coming around with cold water. Um, there were also, you know, I'm happy to see that you have that positive spin, but I also think you sort of underplayed what was, um, for a lot of people, a, a very, very difficult experience. You said a kala. It was more than one kala who um, their wedding took place, either took place without guests or took place at midnight, four hours late. Um, there were babies who were stuck in traffic jams without their mothers and didn't have uh, access to milk. There were babies without materna. There were children without food. Um, this was a big deal. And the violence, and again, I, I'm saying this only from what I was reported, but the descriptions of the violence were not, um, this was not just blocking streets. There were descriptions of cars being put on fire. There were blocks being thrown. There, you know, tires being burned. Okay. Um, there was, there was, and this person was actually arrested, but I saw the video of it. And I don't think this was an Ethiopian from what I saw, at least of the video who did this, but part of the, you know, this isolated case, they burnt the Madim. I think it was of a, of a Mishmar Hagvul, a, a border patrol officer. They burnt, like they took, like they took um, a uniform and they burnt it. That guy was actually arrested. Um, but but there was some ugly parts of this and some violent parts of this. And I don't think we should underplay that. I think we have to put that on the table um, because 
My fear is what I don't want to happen in this conversation is that we turn this into a very simplistic good guys versus bad guys kind of conversation. Um, I worry about that. I think that um, America is doing that very much. It's like either you're on the side. Let me hold on. Ruby wants to say something. Yeah, I, I don't want to interrupt you. I want to make sure that I'm interrupting. Uh, no, my own point was I didn't I didn't I didn't mention the violence because I think I'm, of course, not in favor of violence. I actually th I don't agree with this entire mode of protesting. We could talk about that later. I think it should be illegal. I think the police should stop it. But I I think we have to, I didn't want to mention it because I don't, I think it's important. It's it's part of the story, but it, I think it hijacked the story. Okay, so it's one second. So, right. so that's my point. Mm -hmm. And what I want to make sure is that we don't, meaning I agree. And this, this is what I want to say in agreement with you and Johnny. I agree that um, we have to view this as a, cry from the Ethiopian community that is not just about this story. And if Johnny is right, they're investigating the situation. It's very unclear what happened there. Um, I, I, I think I'm not sure, you know, we don't know the details from what it sounds like. It's not that the guy shot the guy point blank range. It seems to me from what's being told, he did not behave appropriately, but he, it was like a bullet that was from what I saw shot down and then ricocheted up, um, which doesn't make it better. He should have shot, not shot at all or shot in the air. I don't know what's going on. I shouldn't even talk about this facts because it's under investigation. Let's wait. But what I do want to say, wait one second, what I do want to say is that, like, clearly, as, as, as Johnny said, this was a straw that broke the camel's back for the Ethiopian community. Um, the way I view it, in terms of their response, we actually had a very interesting evening in Alon Shvut that we organized for, um, about the LGBT community. And we were talking about, uh, we, we had a few religious gay participants. Um, and in the midst of a conversation about the Pride Parade, Right? Why does it have to be so flamboyant? Why does it have to be so out there? Their answer, which spoke to me very deeply, more than one response, one came in, in a form of a letter, one a person said was, we spent our whole lives feeling shame and holding a secret and um, um, having to hide who we were and, and, and thanking people for, for acknowledging our existence and like anybody who didn't treat us badly, we were so grateful. When we finally have the freedom to, to kind of be who we are, we take it to an extreme place because that's the reaction after all of that, like secrecy and shame. So the reaction comes out a little bit more flamboyant than you would expect, a little bit more extreme. And I think that for, I would, I therefore see this reaction of the Ethiopian community and I understand it. Um, that doesn't mean that I condone it, but it means that I understand it. I understand the like, it, it really is a straw that broke the camel's back phenomenon. At the same time, and I, I agree with you also that the question is, what should we do and how can we do better and how as a community can we do better? Um, and, and I also even hear the argument that the community has said, and as Ravjani said, like, we've been quiet. We're, we're, we're such the, the community is a very like um, there's a lot of respecting of elders in the community. There's a lot of tradition in that community. They're not a loud community that, that knows how to advocate for themselves. So that it's finally like. You haven't, we've been trying, you haven't been listening to us. So like, we're going to resort to an extreme measure to have you hear us. If this is what it takes, this is what we're going to do. And that is very sad that why, why does it have to be that way that we can't hear and we can't um, respond until we get to a chever, until we get to a crisis. And I think that all of those things are hundred percent true. At the same time, I still would like to hope that as a culture and as a community, we don't devolve into this very black and white type of an approach where it's like, yes, violence is justified because the police are so terrible, or, you know, a, an extreme reaction on the other side of, you know, a very racist negative reaction. I, I would not like to see that type of 
of of um you know a kind of distinction i would rather and 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 what i've seen that gives me the most hope are the calls from within the ethiopian community themselves because i agree with you ruby it's like you know i i the most powerful calls are from within the community themselves not from people who are standing on the outside and watching but from from within the community themselves johnny you posted something by sharon by sharon shalom um and I found something that Sivan Rahav Meir posted. Both of them said, and, and this, by the way, you had said, is there a religious perspective? Maybe this is not a religious Zionist perspective, but this is a religious perspective, and I found it fascinating. Both of them said um, that, that they understand that to school, they understand the, the, the frustration and the sense of, um, of hopelessness and the desperation. But at the same time, they called on the community and said, violence is not the answer. And what I found fascinating was that both of those leaders came from the place specifically of their tradition and of religion. One of them talked about, you know, hitting the rock versus talking to the rock, I believe. And he said, we have to have dialogue rather than violence. Sharon Shalom said a very similar thing. He said, you know, we, the Ethiopian community, always longed to come to Eretz Yisrael. Um, it was our dream. And we still want to come from that that traditional place of coming here and 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 creating this positive future, but we, we need to do it in ways that are are aligned with our traditional values. And and so that that message I thought was very beautiful and actually very hopeful. And the voices that I found most encouraging, I'm glad that people are saying things like, again, not and, but yes, but yes, there's to school. Yes, um, you have every reason to to be as a community to, to, to scream and we have to fix and change and do better. And at the same time, violence is not an acceptable response. And I think that it's legitimate to say both of those things and to hold both of those things and to dialogue across um, the divide from that place where both sides are holding both of those pieces. Both sides are holding the fact that, that we need to do better. We need to listen and figure out where we can do better. And both sides are holding also and the way we, we express our frustration is through legal means. And when you said, you know, it's become acceptable to block traffic, I'm not sure that that's true. I don't, I don't know if it should be acceptable to block traffic. I heard that I listened to the radio legal. this morning and, and the, the assistant chief of police said that, that in a democratic country, people have the legitimate right to, okay. to social, whatever. Right. Then okay. Then, I, then I happen to think, I, to, I totally agree with you. So I want to... But I'm I want to bring sure this back surge, to Johnny. But, okay, I, but just no, one more thing. I, I want to bring this um, back to Johnny. I, I, even if you would say blocking traffic, um, there even you'd have a question. If you if you shut down a country for five to eight hours, are you serving your, if you're the Histadrut or if you're Haredim or if you're the Hitnakut or you're, you know, the Ethiopian community, are you serving? Or are you, what's that again? Or you're the Nechim? Or you're the Nechim. Or you are the Mechat HaShoko, whatever you are, right? Are you serving your own cause by shutting down the country? For six to eight hours, but leave that aside. Even if you want to say yes, violence is not is really not the answer, and that's certainly not going to serve anybody's cause. And it's okay to say that and still be on the side of 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 crying for the parents of of uh, Solomon and and figuring out how to make things better. And the last thing I want to say is, I, I what I'm afraid of is I don't want this to come become a culture, like again, like I think we're seeing in America, where keyboard warriors become very outraged. And the way that you, you know, demonstrate your solidarity is by, you know, putting up Facebook posts and changing your picture. But what have you really done? I'd like to see us do real things. Like I, I remember when the, when there were piguim in the, in, the, in the early 90s, 
And I said, like, I have to listen to the radio and be sad and cry all day. And a friend of mine said, no, that's not helping anybody. If you want to help, go to the hospital and visit the Nifgaim who are lying in hospital beds. Don't just vicariously make yourself feel bad and feel like you're identifying. You want to do something, really do something. And therefore, I also identify with what you said at the beginning, which is like, what can we do? Are there things that we can actually do? Like, what are actual um, points of change that we can help participate in to make things better? That's much more helpful to me than uh, just, you know, social media outrage. Okay, I want to re- respond to something you that Molly just said, and that she said, something that uh, theoretically we all agree with, that violence is not the answer and that dialogue is the answer. Here's the problem I have with that. So if you look at the news, as I am looking at right now, now, of course, they announced that 80%, 84% of the recommendations of some committee against uh, racism are going to be implemented. Right. Meaning violence is not the answer, and protests of black traffic for five hours is not the answer. Except, of course, in this country, that's the only thing that actually gets a response. Not only in this the reason why the Nechim are getting their are, are getting their 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 kitzbaot, you know, their their pensions or whatever raised is because they stopped traffic. And of course, the Ethiopians saw that and said, "Well, we're going to stop traffic." You know, so yeah. Johnny, what do we do with the fact that in 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 I would say in in uh, in uh, headlines we say violence is not the answer, but in reality, everyone really knows that violence is the only answer because that's the only thing that actually gets people's attention and get things done. Oh, okay, so let's. Uh, I think we need to frame this a little bit and change how we're looking about what happened last night. You know, when I was in Yeshiva, this is the year uh, before the assassination of Rabin. There were a lot of Hafganot. Uh, and some led to very ugly things, some did not. But what I observe with my own eyes is how a valid Hafganah, and Hafganah means demonstration for those who are unaware, can be overtaken by a handful of extremists. And what you then have is a picture which has been formulated by a very my, small group of those who are present. We're using the word violence, and I was watching the TV news last night. I saw the cars being burnt in Tel Aviv. I saw the tires being burnt in Kerat Malach. In fact, I just drove past there earlier on today and, and how it's left a mark in the road. But let's not kid ourselves. The great, great majority of people who went out last night, who are probably going out tonight to demonstrate, are doing precisely that. And in almost all cases, a very small subgroup, of which it's claimed some may not even necessarily be full representatives of the Ethiopian Jewish community have used violent means. So it's essential to be able to distinguish between why thousands of people went out on the streets and what we saw on television, which included in very, very micro cases, violence which is ugly and terrible uh, and the need for police to use very, very strong armory, which the police have already been criticized for. And let's ask ourselves instead the second question. Who are protesting? Uh, and I'd like to revert back to what Mali said, quoting Shawan Shalom. This is primarily a protest of the second generation of Ethiopian immigrants who, and uh, I've written about this on a number of occasions, they feel profoundly misunderstood. They're having an identity crisis. You see, because we wanted to normalize Ethiopians and be just like us. Uh, and us, by the way, means oftentimes, uh, in certain cases, the Ashkenazi local community, certainly that's how often the education system plays out. In other cases, it's Friday, uh Jewish community. But nonetheless, there's been a failure to recognize the richness of the Ethiopian culture and heritage. And that's led second generation Ethiopians to look at their parents and grandparents 
strangely saying, I don't understand you because what I'm being taught is apparently the way a Jew should live and your customs are alien to me and your language is strange to me. And yet at the same time, they also recognize they have a special heritage, which isn't necessarily being uh, given its credence until recently in very, very micro ways. So we have to under see this as a flare up of a generation of people who've grown up here who are asking very major questions about who they are, who would feel very, very afraid. And I want to now go back to what Mali said, quoting Sharon, because he interplayed the terms of hope and fear, tikva and pachad. And he said, you know, hope should overcome fear. But Sharon, who uh, is often a representative of the Ethiopian Jewish community, recognizes that what led people to the street last night was fear. Because young mothers are scared that when the young men, their sons, go out on an evening, are they going to come back with bruises? They've seen too many examples of brutality or, or being treated as different in the street, either by the police or others. Now, again, I'm not here to comment. What I do know is that that's ha the perception. And so it's good to say hope should overcome fear. But where the young people are is we're scared. And we're going to go out on the streets and let you guys know that we're scared and we're tired of being scared in the country we were told should be our home. And that message has to be heard. And though it's very good that people are now starting to react to the protests and the violence, and I agree it shouldn't be that we need violence uh, to cause things, but sadly it often does come to flashpoints in whichever expression. Ultimately, the Ethiopian Jewish community, at least many of those who went out, especially those who took the most extreme views last night, are saying we're scared. And though I in no way condone many of the things that I saw on the television, I in no way condone some of the ways some people protest. For the many thousands of people who want their voice heard, our job is to say, we hear you. In fact, I would say even further. In many instances, our job is to say, I'm with you. I stand with you that you shouldn't feel as a second-class citizen in the country you call home, whether it be for racism or in a way that you feel your identity is being ignored or the way that you feel that you've been cornered uh, in particular communities, creating almost sub-ghettos based on your socioeconomic status. So, Johnny, let's assume that we, I, I don't want to, I don't, we get to, let's assume that I agree with everything you just said. I, I really do. And those are all things that I totally agree with, except for one thing. I, I don't have any power to do anything about that. I don't have any power to, to control where people, where the Ethiopian community lives in Kirat Malachi, whether they want to move out to the suburbs or live in Yad Biyamin, or whether they can afford it or not. You know, I'm not, meaning, I don't, you know, I personally think the country's come a long way in trying to cherish the Ethiopian traditions of the Sigid and, as you said, and recognizing the Kesim. I, I think the country's come a long that's way. You, wait, 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 wait. That's only a couple of years old. One second. I, I, I want to just interject here because I want to respond to a couple of things. First of all, Ruby, you asked, like, well, if nothing gets done, unless we're violent, maybe we should justify violence. Um, so Rav Shirlo had a, had a, had a um, post on this. And he said, no, that's not true. You can't say that. If you're, especially if you're a religious person. You can't say the ends justify the means, and therefore I behave in a way that is against my beliefs and my values. Um, to get what I want, that's not, that's called mitzvah above, he's not saying this, I'm saying this, but you, we don't, you, that's not, that's not how you function as a religious person. You do the right thing, meaning you can tell me, listen. Well, the, 
Many, many thousands of Koreans disagree with you. The Dalai Lama, although the Dalai Lama is now, you know, not anymore because he said something. How is it that the Haredim have no problem blocking streets? One second. There are many people who have argued that you can make social change not through violence. And and I I understand the argument that at the end of the day, there's always the radical fringe that pushes things forward and that somehow without the violence, we feel like it's not going to happen. But that doesn't mean that I that I that I justify violence, and violence begets its own negative sociological phenomenon. So I do think it's not. I agree with Johnny. I agree with the idea that we have to stand with the community. But I don't think that standing with the community also means, therefore, I have no right to say certain phenomena are okay and certain phenomena are not okay. And and it's an interesting, it's an important question. I think you know how much. Um, you know what the proportions are, and is it was the majority really peaceful, and are, were the things that we're seeing overblown? Those are important things to come out, but we do have to look at the actual facts. And I think it is legitimate to say that that we are allowed to object to certain forms of protest and to put our feet, feet down and to say again, like I'm afraid of this this like this like black and white thinking that happens, which is I have to be totally with the Ethiopian community, which means that like I can't criticize anything they do. Or I don't know who's saying that. People who's are saying that. I'm saying I, 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 I feel like you're making the straw man and they're knocking him down. But that's okay. Yeah, yeah. What about, not, what about Somali, what about Black and Street? What about Black and Street? The racial divide that's happening in America that I think is a complete disaster. For no, me. I don't think that'll happen here. I, I really don't. I don't get that sense. Okay, what about so Black and Street? Are, are you in favor of Black and Streets? What'd you say? So, well, you think maybe yes. If it's it, you know, if you if you argue to me that um, it's a legal form of demonstration and that it's not legal, it's against the law. Interrupting traffic against the law. Okay, so the, I, I, listen, I, I'm not going to, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Is it civil disobedience? When is civil disobedience legitimate? When is it not legitimate? It's an interesting question. I would definitely say that I draw the line at violence. Um, and I want to say another thing, which is that like, like you, you, Johnny also raised the issue of the Sephardim. Um, Sephardim went through a very similar um, sociological experience Right, the, the racism against the Sephardim from the elites, the Ashkenazi elites in the in the 40s and 50s was terrible. Right, and 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 that really changed with, with the I, I probably um, with the political revolution of 1977. That's why Begin came in power. But what we are now in the year 2020, there is a a such a beautiful resurgence of Sephardi culture. It's it's really beautiful to watch, right? Like like Mizrahi music is the most popular music that there is today. It's 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 now Sephardim have now are 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 reaching a place. The 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 elites are flipping, and I think that that's actually very very positive. So I would hope I'd be very hopeful that that we can view this as. And by the way, I'm not justifying what was done to the Ethiopian community. I was here in 1991, and I remember how they were collect them. And I remember watching it as a little 18 year old girl and thinking like, this is a disaster. What do you guys think you're doing? Like they, they, they were like giving them all hot coffee. I'm like, why are you addicting all these people to caffeine? And they were like <laughs> the kids from their parents and putting them in Bnei Akiva Pnimio. And I'm like, why are you separating families? Like, and again, I don't know if, you know, that was little me observing as a, as, as a trying to be a volunteer, but like definitely mistakes were made and definitely um, there, there are things to cry about, but that's that seems to be, and I'm not justifying it. I'm saying these are these are the growing pains of of a culture that is trying to absorb and assimilate um, cultures. For, there was there was there was racism against the Russians. There, there, there's racism against every group, which doesn't make it right. I'm not justifying it, but what I'm saying is, I would hope 
that that as a culture we can learn to do better and that with time we can get to a place i agree with 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 ravjani where we learn to value um what every culture brings to this country um and to have it be a source of pride right for example i'm sure you all remember this ethiopian khaver uh, knesset who brought mother to the knesset and he bent down and kissed her feet as a as a as a tra- very traditional ethiopian sign of respect and that got went viral and people were like so honored by that and i think that most israelis um are in that place of like we think your culture is amazing and we would like to know more about it and we don't want to we don't want to be a racist culture i think most israelis are are really in that place and and i agree that like please let's do better and i i also saw this article that you sort of referenced before that a couple of years ago they did this really comprehensive study of how to do better by the ethiopian community and they came up with all these points and most of them have not yet been implemented and that's not okay how do we get them to be implemented and then i hear the argument that like Apparently the only way to get something implemented is to you know demonstrate in the streets and be violent and that makes me sad and I would I I would I'd like us to figure out a way to 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 do the positive without having to push people to their breaking point where we end up with um you know we we put push people to a place where they feel desperate and hopeless. Okay. I I think uh, obviously there's a lot more to say. We did, you know, it's a very interesting topic of uh, the idea of civil disobedience where the line is, but I think we'll, we'll stop that here. I think all of us can acknowledge that this has been a very traumatic uh, time in Israel, and it's going to take a lot of time for, uh, for the country to sort of absorb it. Uh, I don't know if the country is going to absorb it or just move on to the next thing, you know, but uh, ho- hopefully it's something that we can learn from. The one thing I would add is I have found that while I agree with you, Molly, in principle that most people are there. I found that in every group, there's always that one WhatsApp, yes. you know, one person on the WhatsApp jerk. group. Yes, correct. That one racist. And what I would say I to that you, is, I feel very, very strongly, I feel very strongly that we have an obligation to respond to it. Yes, and to say, I'm sorry, I correct. find that kind of talk repulsive, and I think you should stop talking now. You know what I'm saying? As opposed to to accepting it. No, as no, opposed a thousand to, you percent. Know, if you're if you see real. I mean, not real. Any form of racism, I think you're 100% right. That has to be uh, pointed to, um, what's the word? Um, objected to, negated without question. That ha- that has to be like, that's like a, a given that has to be very, very forcefully asserted. A thousand percent. I agree with that. Okay. We're, we'll, leave, we'll leave that part of the conversation. Let's move to our second topic, which is much, much lighter. No, not, not unimportant, but much, much different, which is the topic of the change in curriculum in the yeshivot. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Johnny because this is something that uh, he knows about uh, quite personally. He's, a, he's an educational uh, consultant and teaches in, yeshiv- in, he teaches in the yeshiva seminaries right now, but also is well aware. So Johnny, if you'll please do us a favor and introduce the topic, explain what it is, and then uh, Molly and I get to comment. <laughs> um, okay, well, this was triggered by an article in Macaulay Shon. Um, in the 14th of December, it's available online, uh, and it's discussing how, with, with an interview of numerous Roshi Shibari Shibat Haratzion, what things their student body and thereby their, their teaching faculty are focusing on, and what things seem to have either deliberately fallen by the wayside um, or accidentally have fallen by the wayside. They discuss there how there's been a rise of interest in in Neil Hasidut, 
um, how um, how the Lambdas has been approached slightly differently in recent years, how there's been a less of an emphasis on the writings of Rav Cook and more of an emphasis on the teachings of Rav Soloveitchik. And in many ways, the article was asking questions without necessarily providing conclusions. It's saying, why do we think this? And how does a Torah institution respond to the changing interests of its student body? Are there things that the religious Zionist uh, Torah institutions should be teaching that are kind of part of the core ideological curriculum or core skill curriculum? Or are there things that can come and go? So that's kind of what I took from the headlines. And obviously each uh, con contributor offered what they think to be important. We shouldn't forget, and, just, and I'll conclude in just a second, in recent weeks we've got the Yemei um, Iyun at Herzog College, and we've seen a huge rise in interest in the study of Tanakh and the religious Zionist world. We've seen, I think, a divergence from the classic study of Gemara, and when it comes down to Halakha, uh, though some used to explore actualia in terms of state matters, I think from a personal perspective, we see a lot more micro-studies rather than the kind of macro-studies that were fostered in the early years of the state. Uh, expressed Explain what that means. What do you mean by that, micro-studies instead of macro-studies? So in the early years of the state, you obviously had great leaders and visionaries like Chief Rabbi Herzog, but many others too, who tried to figure out what could be Mishpat Ivri and where we could see some kind of a meeting point between Jewish law and a modern Jewish state. Here I'm not talking about purely a halachic state, but where could things meet together? And very, very general and big picture ideas were suggested, both in terms of uh, the judiciary as well as other aspects of Jewish law. My sense now is those conversations do continue, but not quite in such general fashions, but instead in pockets about particular questions that arise from time to time. Uh, other than the flashpoints, which occur certainly on a frequent basis with reference to things like conversion and Jewish status, uh, that may even include, of course, as we discussed before, about the status of Ethiopian Jews that seems to continually uh, still be revisited. Um, so that's kind of, kind of how I see things. Let's go back to the original the, the topic of the change of curriculum and the move from what you would call classical Gemara to what you would what you refer to as neo Hasidism or you know spirituality. So the first question is: Do you think that there's much of a shift? I mean, yes, they're teaching a little bit of, of Hasidism in in Hartzion, but they're still learning Gemara plenty of hours a day, and in most yeshiva they're learning. Or I mean, the the sense that I get is that the, the world of the yeshivot has just exploded and expanded to such a large degree that, that there are just more options and more possibilities for more people. But if you want to go to the regular yeshivot, you want to go to Imale Adumim, or you want to go to Karen Biyavna, they're still learning Gemara like they learned it when we did it 20, you know, 30 years ago, and like you know, that our parents did 30 years before. So is it, is it that there's this, the, that... We've lost the core and, you know, less people care about Gemara. Or, or is it just that more people are involved now and more people are just different? They're more, they're, there's a broader sense of interest, a wider range of interest, because you've now brought more people into the circle. 
Mali. Just briefly, I'm sorry, just, uh, just before Mali responds, I should be. Uh, I'd like to be on record to say that if the core was 95% Gemara, I'm not so sure how good that core was, um, uh, and uh, we're seeing a greater level of diversity. So uh, there may well have been a time where the great, great majority of Torah study in some of the religious Zionist yeshivot was Gemara, with a little bit of Tanakh and Halakha, and we've seen a greater diversification. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? That's not really for me to say. However, what's interesting is what it's not being replaced with. I, I, I'm not aware, and it wasn't necessarily expressed, that there is a greater investment of time in, in serious analysis of halakha, but instead these peripheral uh, areas of Jewish thought, which uh, uh, which uh, may well reflect new chasidut, may well reflect a different in parashanut, etc. But uh, what was and what it's been replaced with obviously tell us a story, whether that's a good story or not. I think that's uh, altogether dependent on what our learning outcomes are, what we're really trying to achieve in these kind of places. Molly. Uh, I definitely think that there is something going on. There, there's some type of a sea change or a quiet revolution that is happening um, among the youth. Um, I, I, I see it, and it's sort of connected to our conversation that we had last week about, the, like, I find it quite fascinating what's happening with Israeli youth. Um, there's definitely, it has to do with returning to Eretz Yisrael. It has to do with living a Jewish, a fully Jewish life, as opposed to a compartmentalized Jewish life um, in the Gola. Uh, it has to do with the Tanakh being very alive. It has to do with spirituality and God being very alive in, in, the, in the experience of our youth. And, 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 and I do think that, therefore, the relationship to halacha and to and to learning Gemara Bi'iun has changed. Um, I, I, I actually like the way you're framing it because I think a lot of people try to view it as good or bad, right? Like, oh, it's so bad that 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 like the only places now that you can learn serious Gemara are with, as far as you know, just from what I understand from the youth youthful lingo of the day is Hamishulash Hamirubah, right? The the three square yeshivas that are left, which is apparently Jivat Haritzion, Malaya Dumim, and I imagine Perimbiavna is maybe the third. What's the third? I, I never heard that. Okay, it's just the, the Mishulash Hamirubah, <laughs> right? And then outside of the Mishulash Hamirubah, you know, you, you've got all the- There's 70 other yeshivas where, where they're that, learning, exactly. you know, everything they're, under they're the sun. also learning Kamarad to, to greater or lesser degrees, but there's also a lot more- um, Call it neo chasidut, just call it plain old chasidut. Um, in that article, I forgot who it was, I forgot which Rosh Hashiva it was, said something very wise when he when he was talking about why he thinks there's more of Salvatric than Rav Cook. I don't know if this is why there's more of Salvatric than Rav Cook, but I think it's true of our generation. He said, because our, our these these youth are not focused on the cloud, they're focused on the individual, they're focused on themselves, themselves and their relationship with God, which is quite fascinating. Um, so, but I like the way you framed it, which is like, can we, again, I'll go to like, can we not make this good or bad either or Ion Gemara versus, you know, Neo Hasidur and it's two different ways. Can we say like, there's, there, there's an explosion of learning. There's an explosion of spirituality. There's an explosion of yeshivot. The, like we're adding to what there is. Yeshivat Arzion is still there. They're still fighting there for their Velazhin model. And for the people who want that, they're going to hold that torch and they're going to keep that torch burning. And Baruch Hashem. And then for, for, for other students and for women, by the way, right, there's an explosion of women's learning also. 
for women who want intensive Gemara, there's programs that exist or that are going to continue to exist or that are opening. And for people, let's say that, for students who want something a little bit different, who are looking for something else that's no less religiously or spiritually intense, but that, but that maybe looks for spirituality in other ways, we're creating new avenues for that too. And to me, I see that as very, very, whether it's all good, I can't say it's complex like everything else, but there are certainly things about it that I see as really, really positive and really creative and really like a, a, a expression of the flourishing of, of Shivat Zion, if you want to go back to religious Zionism. All right, let, let's take it in another direction because we're talking about yeshivot, but for young people. But I want to ask a different thing, which is, I don't know, I don't know if this is a change or an adjustment. You know, I, I, I see my friends or colleagues or people who I know who live in more, I would say, less of an American Chardal communities and the Israeli Chardal communities. And you see there's there's a, a value of being kovea itin. Uh, in, and in my community, okay, there are a tremendous amount of people who do dafyomi, which is great. But if there's not dafyomi, the idea of, like, I, and I know people do learn, they go to a shir once a week, or they go to, you know, they have a chavruta once a week. But the idea of serious kviut itim in our community, it doesn't seem to be a strong priority. So, A, is that just my observation, or do you also sense that? And why is that? Why, you know what I'm saying? Like, if you, the problem is, if you take away the serious Gemara learning, unless you just go to Dafyomi every day and listen to somebody give a shir, then you're, you can't learn the Yochasidut every day. You can't, you know what I'm saying? Gemara is, is there for learning. Halacha is there for, for, for serious Kovea Itim. There's an article Once you don't have that, then you you don't yeah. leave yourself open to being kovei itim on a regular basis. Right. So that's really interesting. So Rabbi Tal says that. Rabbi Tal has an article about um, Gemara where he talks about that. And he says, if you go to any shul that has a shear that's lasted 40 years, it's usually a Gemara shear. Daf Yomi or, or any other type of Gemara shear. Somehow there's something about um, that type of ion that, that creates certain consistency. Um, it's an interesting point, and it's I think it's it's important. And I agree with you. That's why we should not uh, throw out the baby with the bathwater. We should continue to to have Gemara be learned on a serious level um, and in a consistent way. Um, at the same time, you know, there's a whole there's a whole many reasons why the the, the world of Kav, right, the world of the Chardal Rav Cook world, is different than our world. And again, in that article that Rav Johnny referenced, this I think was of Moshe Lichtenstein, said that his father described the Haredi world as like having like a laser. It's very intense and it's very, very pinpointed, but it's also very narrow, right? It's very specific. Um, our worlds try to be broader. Um, with that comes a certain diffusiveness. And therefore our challenge, I, I, I don't think our solution is to say, well, therefore we're wrong. Our solution, is, our, our challenge is how can we bring in more of that intensity, more of that consistency, more of what they're doing right. How can we learn from them from those positives? And maybe that's one of the answers is like, yeah, don't give up on, on those like serious, um, you know, the serious lambdas, because at the end of the day, that's a place that's much easier to have consistency in. Listen, you can have Nachiomi. You could, you know, there, there's nine to nine now, right? It's not that it's nowhere. But I think that to, to ignore the truth in what you're saying would be, um, you know, probably an oversight. There, there's something to that idea that, like, there's a consistent. So, Rav Johnny, how do we get that intensity back? Solve the problem. Um, I, I, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to do that. However, I do want to um, 
actually respond to what Mali said. You know, some years ago, I used to send out a weekly newsletter, which concluded with a quote of the week. And in a really interesting interview with Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, he said the following, and I quote, I tend to feel today that we are looking at Judaism through a microscope, microscope sorry, instead of through a telescope. And he's obviously saying we need to be a little bit more broad brushstroke about how we look at things. Now, a, a, a rabbi responded to uh, what I said, and they said uh, one of Rav Scheinberg's uh, favorite expressions was, telescopes are interesting, microscopes save millions of lives. And in that little um, ping pong of communication, we have there an interesting paradigm. There are those who want to look at the world through a telescope, and there are those who want to look at the world through a microscope. And I think uh, Mali's right that uh, a, a certain brand of yeshiva will focus in a microscopic manner. And we're seeing uh, in a whole variety of different ways, uh, stimulated by a whole variety of different reasons, including uh, our limited attention span today, a greater desire for broad brushstroke pictures, uh, which may well have an impact on the curricula that we choose to focus on. And even when studying Gemara, the lack of emphasis on, on Ian, which is what the article was speaking about. Uh, I, I, I appreciate Mali's recognition that uh, I wasn't here to make a judgment one way or another. I spend much of my day writing curriculum. You have to meet students where they're at. At the same time, you also need to make sure that you're not uh, doing them a disservice in what you teach them. But things are changing. Uh, what's clear, though, is the classic uh, uh, ingredients which people often think of when they talk about religious Zionism, namely the writings of Rav Cook, seem to be uh, something which we say is interesting that we'll quote once in a while, won't study in the way things used to be. Primarily the emphasis on Tanakh has changed and how we look at things, not Tanakh with Mafarshim, but with Tanakh with a greater uh, approach towards Parshanot in, in the slightly more academic sense of the word. Uh, and finally, in terms of how we learn Gemara, uh, a, a great enjoyment of Agadah, which used to have really no place in the classic yeshiva world, etc., etc. It, it's an interesting time. Okay, I want to conclude by opining. Like you, I think Johnny said you didn't want to think you say it was good or bad. I, I'm, uh, I'm going to take a, take a stab at this. I, I think the lack of Gemara and Iyun, I think it's bad. I think it's bad for, for two reasons, for two primary reasons, and I think that that like, we talked a few weeks ago about kfiya, about forcing, and that it's not interesting, and we don't want to force our kids. But like everything, everything that that our that our children or our students are going to enjoy, they have to get over the hump. They have to learn how to do it in order to get to the point where they can enjoy it and appreciate it, and really appreciate the beauty and the nuance. And if you don't force them to do that, then they're always going to like. I feel like we're raising, for lack of a better word, an art school generation where everything is sort of translated, even in the Hebrew. And and you're all, you're reading it on the surface level, and, and you think that that's all there is to it. So then, on the one hand, first of all, the, the, if there's if they're not learning Eun and they're not forced to confront, there are basic text skills that you must have. If you can't read a Tosot on your own, then you can't read a Bach, and you can't read a Beit Yosef, and you can't read the the basic. You can't read a Mishnah Brura. How many kids can't read a Mishnah Brura anymore? Because well, there's you know there's Menei Halacha, and if I don't understand it in Hebrew, I'll, you know like I, like that's all. How much do you really need to know? So the basic skills are, are if, if we don't give them and transmit them to our, to our children when they're in yeshiva, when they're in their formative years of learning, those are skills that they will never, ever have. And then they'll be sort of hobbled in their ability to understand and appreciate deeper sources for the rest of their lives. That's number one. 
And of course, the number two, and anyone who studied Gemara in a deep way, in a deep way understands the, be the beauty of it is the critical analysis and the critical thinking. And not, not only this is to, to come to a deeper appreciation of Chazal and Halakha and Torah, but it's also to develop a sense of individuality and critical thinking in all areas of life. And, you know, what is this? What is the nature of this Halakha? And how come it's like this? And wh where would you apply it? And, and all, all the different areas that are lacking when all you're doing is learning the Dafyomi because our kids, we want our kids to learn and learn and learn and cover material and say they made eight Siyumi. So I think it's bad. I think that it's a negative, and I think that it's sort of pandering to what our kids, like you said, wanted as individuals. When we're when when we as educators are, and when educa educators, their job is to tell them what, not what they give them what they want, but to give them what they need. And that this brings me to my my final point, which is I think uh, the, the reason why it's so hard is because it's really hard to do that, not only for kids but also for adults. It's hard to be a Gemara teacher, and and. We assume that someone who gets a teaching degree because they went to Yeshiva Hezder and got a teaching degree along the line, then you can stick them in front of a class and because they learn Gemara, they're going to know how to teach it. And, and many of them fail and many of the kids end up hating, literally hating Gemara so that when they come to Yeshiva afterwards, either they get lucky and are, are exposed to an incredible teacher and say, well, how come you never taught me this way all these years? Or they don't get lucky and they never want to learn Gemara. And so, so I think a lot of it stems from the lack of good teachers, and going back to what Molly said about a 40-year-old shear, I think the 40-year-old shear lasts because they found a good a good rab who they love hearing a shear from, and it's interesting and 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 fascinating, and, and and that's something that people really relate to and can come back to, and so maybe the the solution to all of this is we need to spend more time and more effort on teaching how to teach Gemara and teaching how to teach it well and right, as opposed to just assuming. And, and pandering and giving them something else, when in reality, what, what Gemara is going to do is create lifelong learners and create people with a passion for Torah. Yeah, That's I like what you're sense. saying, because I just, uh, just to like end on my point that I began with, which is like a nuanced and a hopeful place, which is like, instead of just, you know, painting all the bloom and doom to say like, great, so this is a challenge. And I know that there are yeshivot that are trying to do this. It's not easy and it's not always working and it's not always working 100%, but like, in its own way, is trying to confront this and trying to figure out how do I lishalev, how do I balance teaching serious Gemara Ion, but also including other elements that today's youth are pulling for. And maybe we'll get there. Like maybe, as you said, we'll create better teachers, we'll create better programs, we'll create a way. Like that's my hope. My hope is that we can find a way to um, go through these growing pains and get to a get to a a place where we really can hold both of these elements and not have to sacrifice one or the other. Okay, just I think we're, just a, yeah, go ahead. Just one one final final thing only because things you just mentioned. Number one, uh, as a some you know as an educator, if we always approached teaching when we're focusing on learning outcomes, then then that would be wise. Unfortunately, there's been a presumption if a young man is in yeshiva, and in some cases, a young woman is in seminary, she will naturally absorb skills. That's just ridiculous. Uh, and I believe that e even if you don't study uh, full Gemara and there can be lifelong skills that can make you a lifelong learner, um, even if you take a slightly different direct to it. That's point number one. Point number two is... Um, there is a presumption in, in how you've described it, Reuben, that 
through learning Gemara B'Iyun, you therefore become a capable halacha learner. I, I don't see that connection, regrettably. Uh, and I think there's been too much emphasis sometimes on Iyun B'Gemara and it's uh, the link, the bridge with halacha l'ma'aseh. And lastly, a simple anecdote. I went to Yeshiva with ten friends, well, nine other friends, uh, in Kerem B'Yavne many, many moons ago. Uh, I was undoubtedly the, the least good Gemara learner of them all. The truth is I probably still am. However, I think amongst them I'm probably one of the most uh, industrious lifelong learners. Meaning, skills alone doesn't make you a lifelong learner. Passion does. You need to have enough skills that with the passion you can make progress. So there is a bar which you need to reach, and then on, take it on your own way, hold the baton and run. Being a better Gemara learner doesn't automatically create the lifelong learner that we're trying to make. And we'll leave it there. I, 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 I have more to say, but we'll leave it there. <laughs> it's going to be said enough. Okay, I want to thank Molly Bravsky and Rabbi Johnny Salman. Great to have you back for joining with thank us. You. My name is Ruben Spolter. You've been listening to RZ Weekly. I, I to forget to mention this every week, but if you're listening to us on iTunes and you want to rate us, that will help our, our promotion and maybe more people will see this podcast. And we'd appreciate it if you share it with your friends. Share it on our Facebook page, on your Facebook page, and let everybody know about it. I also want to thank my son, Betachis Volker, for running our music. And I'm Ruben Spolter. Have a good week, everybody.